My guest this morning is an old friend, one of the perhaps most perceptive observers of about the American comedy, the human comedy, Milton Mayer, who has been writing for a good number of years. His style is salubrious, but more than that, his observations are quite pertinent and on target. I was about to say, unfortunately, too often, considering the state of the world these days, but more of that. And Mr. Mayer uh, recently has been teaching, spending time in Paris, teaching, God help us, American civilization. So of this we'll hear, too, in a moment after this message. So, Milton Mayer, again we meet, and, uh, and uh, a bit has happened in the world here and there, in different parts of it, including our own, and where do we begin? Studs, I've been out of the world. Uh, in, you know, France is out of the world. French, as you know, they are a funny race. Uh, coming back home is uh, as usual, but a little more than usual this time, a kind of knock on the head. Uh, I, you know, I've thought for a long time that uh, you and I were two of a kind. Uh, hustlers, wanderers, strangers, seekers, listeners, lookers, yakkers, uh, and I've tried to, I've been a fairly pale imitation of you. No, it's uh, the other way around, but okay. But uh, I have a suspicion there's something that distinguishes us one from the other, and that is that you've still got some faith in talk. Uh, I'm beginning to lose mine. My splinters are being shivered by the cacophony of the world. It's, it's incessant, it's ubiquitous, communication is everywhere, and nobody seems to understand anything or to be listening. Uh, it sinks me into a deep despond. And you go right on not so much talking as listening. I wonder if there's any profit in your doing so, and what the profit has been. Can you tell me about it? I know you didn't get rich. What have you learned? Oh, it's a, it's a tough one. Perhaps we should start with, you said, com more communication. Now, I think com uh, Wright Morris used the phrase concerning the media, that overused word, and technology, radio and television and film. There's communications, but little communication. And the communications, considering television, perhaps the most important of all, the means of reaching people. It is a sales medium primarily, yet it could be one of fantastic enlightenment, but it isn't. It's mm -hmm. concerned with selling. And the communications concern lies primarily. The TV commercial probably is the great horrendous metaphor of our day. It is pervasive, it is with us, and yet we know basically it is untruthful. And people have this continuously, so that's the number one obstacle. Studs, you know, you say it's really a medium of selling. Are you suggesting that it's uh, a misrepresentation of man, excuse me in these days of women's death, <laughs> a misrepresentation of humankind, or is it simply that we're all concerned only with selling and we don't care what we sell but only how we can get it sold? I think, Milton, that you have some, though you deny it, you do have a faith, uh, you, you're a Quaker, and you do have a faith in uh, what we, at the moment, laughingly called humankind. I do too, but I think it has been perverted. I mean, the medium television mm -hmm. is not, does not reflect man's deep feelings. I don't feel this. I, I feel it has been perverted in this kind of society. W I'm sure that you and I both agree that man is both. 
he's both. Yeah. St. Anne Devil, he's look, both. You know. uh, studs, television is the, I, I would say, the most pernicious uh, representation of commercialism, uh, the most influential. It's plunged us into illiteracy. Uh, places, universities now, for instance, California, 45% of the students are having to take remedial English. Uh, but does this one form of commercialism uh, Re really no, represent no. a misrepresentation well, no, of us, I, I, or is this what we've we've no, built on? No, I, I ba back to uh, television for a moment. I don't mean I don't mean mm. to to spend too long on this, except that it's so powerful. It can be. I don't think television is innately this uh, uh, the medium or whatever it is the means of of debilitating American language or or debasing it. I think the very manner which is TV. After all, it could be like Gutenberg's press, too. It is, in, in that it's a very exciting means of reaching one case in point, and then we can go on to the matter of man. Uh, I remember the, these people I met, and come to the matter of talk, and the kinds of people who I hope I'm reaching or trying to find out about. Uh, this couple hated black people all their lives, and their kids did, and one day during the Selma matter, Selma Montgomery matter, they saw they saw something, and it horrified them. They saw the police of Jim Clark, the sheriff, pushing back the people, women and kids, and they were just horrified. And it hadn't occurred to them. And that particular moment, it may, there may have been an accretion of events, but that was sort of a revelatory moment for them. And they've altered considerably. So that's a case of TV being used toward enlightenment, you see. So it has that means. Yeah, so what you're, what the you're medium is not per se bad. Well, what the trouble, the tr what you're saying is that is that even a bad technique can't help but be used for good purposes mm. once in a while. But the purposes don't lie in the technique. Television, like radio, mm. like the press, is nothing but an instrument. It's nothing but a tool. It's how it's used. And my course. suspicion is, my growing suspicion, my darkening suspicion, is that it's doing a pretty fair job of representing the lowest common denominator, which of course is its object all sublime, since the maximization of its audience is the yeah. basis for the ratings, which is the basis That's for the true. advertising. You see, then we have to go into the whole matter of, I hate to use the phrase in the time of Skinnerism, conditioning, but not in the manner of B.F. Skinner, the opposite. I remember way back working for an uh, advertising agency long ago, and uh, they had soap operas on the air, television soap operas, Ma Perkins, um, Helen Trent, can a woman find love after 35? An academic question today. Mm -hmm. And then I said, wouldn't it be something? The technique is there. Suppose they did romantic novels. I mean, not, I don't mean uh, Joyce. I don't want to mean Melville. Suppose they did Wuthering Heights. Or suppose they did Jane Eyre. At maybe the first month or so, the ratings would be down. But if all of them did good writing, yes. would it not be the opposite of is Gresham's uh, law putting a good bad course. money putting good money out? Of well, course. wouldn't good money in this case put bad money of out? Of course, yeah. but who's going to put up ah. the good money? Well, uh, <coughs> look, look, friend. Uh, I've lived a lot in Europe, both east and west, and I've seen the issue. You've seen the issue. The issue, at least, would appear to be, in terms we're talking about the media. The issue would appear to be between commercial, or what we call private control, and state control. And it's a doggone rough issue.
I've seen the state control. It's yeah. worse than the yeah. commercial yeah. control, and the commercial control appears to be yeah. about as yeah. bad as it can be. Now, give me an answer to that one. Give me a solution. This, is, of course, that's yeah. not a journalistic no. issue. Basically, that's a social issue. Yeah. What kind of society is it possible to have in I Europe? In fact, everywhere in the world, with a couple of uh, inconsequential exceptions, radio and television are state-controlled. Yeah. Uh, they're not too bad uh, in, say, in England, where it appears there's a somewhat higher level of civilization than there is elsewhere. When you get as far yeah. away as uh, Eastern Europe, yeah. Nothing could yeah. be worse. Yeah. Nothing could be worse. You you, you wish you were mm -hmm. back mm -hmm. to the soap suds advertising yeah. in America. I know it's a tough one, of course. Uh, that state of being politically we haven't reached yet, obviously. But I want to come, and certainly not in Eastern Europe, not in bureaucratic state, we'll call it state social, what you will, but in England, take, take BBC for a moment, though there's, now they have commercial uh, TV there. Cool. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there were three channels uh, that BBC had, and there's a uh, program, I've got program one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a question of some choice. Some choice was allowed. There's light mm -hmm. programming, home programming, and the mm -hmm. third program. And I suppose FMT would fall in the category roughly of third program, you know. And there was this choice that isn't so. The, I think there can be. I agree with you. State, uh, state control of TV as practiced in the world today is pretty awful. But there can be, I think, improvements. If, uh, let's talk, take our society. If uh, NET were freer than it is at the moment, a little more free than it had been since, since Watergate, uh, there have been some fairly good ones on NET, PBS, generally, if they, if they have more guts, and they had little guts until recent moments. So this is an example. I think if the TV commercial, uh, this, let me just dwell on this for a moment. The TV commercial does four things at the same time, several things at the same time that destroys us. It demeans us as we watch it. We see the woman or the man become childish, not childlike, but childish. Uh, we see good talent among actors, uh, writers, photographers, uh, musicians, lending themselves to something cheap and shoddy and basically a lie. They are demeaned, we are demeaned, but it has another effect. On the occasional program which something good happens, the TV commercial comes on. Let's say a news event, life and death. The mother's carrying a child out. The child is dead and she's grief-stricken. The B-52 has done it, or a fire in the ghetto. And we watch that as we're eating our supper, and then the commercial comes on. The woman says, did you try this detergent or this deodorant? Therefore, the life becomes as insignificant as the detergent. No more so, the detergent mm -hmm. is better produced. So that has an effect on us to, to create schizophrenia. Studs, you're saying that this, you're saying that television uh, corrupts. Of course it corrupts, but doesn't the corruptibility have to be there? Isn't it responding to and battening on well. the corruptibility? Are you're saying you're not getting what you want. I'm not getting what I want. But when we talk about we, are we not getting what we want? We want all kinds of things. But the maximization of the audience turns on reaching an ever lower denominator. Now we come to something, and here's the point about the books I worked on, and the question you were asking about talk. It would seem, I mean, outwardly it seems that 
This guy works very hard. He's tired. He's worked in the steel plant. He's very tired. Or the man who's a white-collar guy, and he's watching something, and it's pretty awful. And you think that's what he wants. That's what he's been getting through the years. Mm -hmm. But his imagination has not yet been tapped. Back to talk. Not too much of my stuff has been with a celebrity, you know, the mm. starlet or the star or the big chat. It's with someone who has never been asked about his life before. As a result, it is as though it's a new land. Uh, it's as though, it, as though, not I'm Columbus, but as though there's a kind of new untapped domain uh, touching. And when you touch that, when you reach that new domain, asking a person about what is his day like, he's never been asked this before, he, she, I should say. Mm. And then all of a sudden, uh, some sort of a phrase comes out that's quite poetic. And this man, this person, this woman in her hair curlers, or this guy who's just come from a beer at the tavern, you, we may say he likes that program because that's all he's been taught. And we have to go back to education and schools too, but there's more to him than that not yet tapped. So I suppose if I'm looking for one thing, it is the possibility, rather what is, what can be. Studs, do you realize that you are speaking to me at the end of the 20th century of what you should forgive the expression is the Christian era and you're saying it's not yet been tapped. I agree with you. That I agree with you that something in us wants something better, something in us longs for and dreams for something better, but something in us moves us more readily to accept the junk and the rot that's breaking the whole thing down. I'm going to turn tables, because you may interview me. It's you. Now, you, Milton Mayer, you have traveled through the country. You have been in places where Nazism was. But you have come across individuals that perhaps they are remarkable and unusual. But didn't these men and women whom you met, quite remarkable under most trying circumstances, dreadfully so, didn't they indicate something to you of the possibilities in all of us? I, I, I know that they were singular people. Of course. I mean, you can address yourself to the better angels of a human being's nature, and you'll respond. Uh, in my years, what am I saying years, my decades of association, peripheral association, with the American Friends Service Committee, uh, this is what that institution has tried to teach me to do, to go to the man or the woman who would be the enemy or who feels that he or she is the enemy and to say, friend. Uh, this, I think, is, well, it's more than effective. But look how minuscule it is. Let me tell you a story, studs. <coughs> this goes back 20 to 30 years. I was living in Germany after the Second World War. I was supposed to be doing a book and did a book on the Nazification of the little man, as the Germans call themselves, the little man in Germany. And I was finding it a hard nut to crack. Here I was not only an American, that is a conqueror, but I was also a professor, and in Germany the professor and the little man never meet. I finally found some of my quotes, little man, who had been Nazis, and then, uh, then the job started. How could I get them to open up and talk to me freely? And that took some doing, friend, and I wasn't getting anywhere. One day, one of my ex-Nazi friends uh, in this group that I was working with or trying to work with 
asked me to come out to his village for the 1200th anniversary of its founding that Sunday, and I said I'd be glad to. He said, maybe you'd come out, professor, and go to church. I said, well, um, I go to a church here usually uh, where I'm living, and uh, he said, well, uh, it'd be the same church. It'd be the, the evangelical church, the Lutheran church in our town. I said, well, I go to a different church. He said, what church do you go to? Well, I said, I go to uh, a church of a small group called the Quakers. He's silent for a long time. He said, Quaker. Quaker. He said, Professor, what does Quaker mean? I told him as best I could. He said, let me tell you about the year the First World War ended. He said, I was a child, but old enough to remember on the farm. In our village, we had no seed for the winter of 1919, and this meant starvation. And one day, a truck arrived with some bags of seed, and we all made a crop that year. My father made a crop that year, and it saved everybody in our village. And nobody knew where this seed came from, but people said it was Quaker seed. And nobody ever knew what that meant, Quaker seed. And I said, well, it was sent by the Quakers in America. But he said it didn't say so. I said, no, they just wanted to help out some people. And he didn't say anything. And we separated. The next time we met, he said, Professor, I want to show you something. He rolled up his shirt sleeve and showed me on his shoulder the tattoo mark of the SS. The mark, the SS were all tattooed. This was the Schutzstaffel, the black guard of the Nazis. Uh, they were all tattooed. The tattoo hadn't taken very well, and the American, his American captors after the war had missed the tattoo mark. To have been an SS man would have been per se to be guilty of a crime, and he would have been in prison. He wanted me to know that he had been an SS man. He opened up, he told me the whole story of his life, everything he had done and everything that he hadn't done. Here was I capitalizing on what the Quakers had done 30 years before by sending Quaker seed to a village of enemies. Uh, I don't say I changed that man's life. I did nothing. It was the Quakers 30 years before who had done something and who had enabled me to crack that man's heart open. Uh, now, this is uh, not an unusual story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the American Friends Service Committee uh, gave a couple of sawmills, primitive sawmills, to both sides, the communist and the non-communist sides in Laos. A couple of primitive sawmills run by uh, Volkswagen Motors. Well, those sawmills aren't going to do much in terms of the 500 million people that face starvation in the world now. They'll do only a little bit. They'll do as good as nothing. But the few people they reach will be touched. The people who long for, dream of, and want something more than hatred and war and greed. Uh, 
And the important thing about it, studs, this kind of thing is what it does to the people themselves who are doing it, relieving them of the guilt, above all in a society like ours, which is filthy rich, filthy fat, the, the profligate society, not just of our time, but, and I throw in Rome, imperial Rome, but of all time. Uh, you know, there's another organization. You'll forgive all these mm -hmm. plugs. There's another organization called the Fellowship of Reconciliation. <coughs> it's a small organization, an interdenominational organization representing Catholic, Jewish, and Protestant peace groups. The Fellowship of Reconciliation, or FOR, is asking people to give them six dollars a month to keep one Vietnamese orphan alive. Six dollars will keep one Vietnamese orphan alive for one month. Six dollars. I reckon that the... what's six dollars? Six dollars won't buy you a meal in America. Uh, that's fit to eat. I suppose it won't. The devil would go to a restaurant now. I suppose six dollars will buy you a haircut. Uh, well, if you don't mind the plug. No, the, I do not mind the plug. The Fellowship of Reconciliation. You better give the address. Yes, sir. The Fellowship of Reconciliation, its address is Box 271. This sounds like a commercial. Well, this is a commercial that... Is, is one that is a very affirmative one indeed. 271. Box 271, Nyack, New York. That's N-Y-A-C-K. And the zip code is 10960. Box 271, Nyack, New York. N-Y-A-C-K, 10960. $6 will keep one Vietnamese orphan alive for one month. This don't 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 worry about whether it was you who made an orphan out of that orphan or whether it was your countrymen who made an orphan out of that orphan. Look what you can buy for six dollars a month. How are we going to reach people with this? Uh, Milton there's something else. Uh, this just said he will keep one orphan alive and the question not how that child came to be an orphan but not only would we do that, for the person who sends the six bucks, here we go, this is connected with the story you told a moment ago, the very telling one about that SS guy you saw who unburdened himself to you because of something that happened 30 years ago, thanks to the Quakers. So there is something else involved here, too, because there's no doubt that guilt, and guilt must be felt at one time or another. It has to be. There must be a recognition of it. But the assuaging of it is also a terribly important thing, and this is what you're talking about now, mm -hmm. in order to survive sanely, to go on from there. It's for right. us to survive right. sanely, not for the orphan to survive. Precisely. For us to yeah. survive. That $6 will keep you and me alive for a month in a way that it won't keep yeah. the orphan alive yes. for a month. Uh, while we're at it, good gracious, I've never had anything like this going. Uh, here, here I am again. <laughs> Don't I've quit spoken now. A friend of mine, so the wind is with you. I've spoken of the American Friends Service Committee. Uh, and... They're in the Chicago telephone book. Their Chicago regional office is. 
their national office is 160 North 15th Street, Philadelphia, 19102. The American Friends Service Committee can feed a child in Orissa Province in India a hot meal for two cents. Two cents will buy a starving child in India a hot meal. Uh, what does this do? The American Friends Service Committee, 160 North 15th Street, 19102. What does this do to people like you and me? Uh, what does not doing it do to people like you and me? I'm so bloody sunk in guilt and despair uh, that if I had the money to buy inflated ammunition, I'd shoot myself. I've lived, you've lived, like decent bourgeois Americans. One of or another of us a little more decently, a little less decently. What does two cents mean to us? What does six dollars mean to us? What will reach us? What will touch us? Because at the end of this 20th century of the Christian era, so-called, it looks as if the human race is not going to be a great success. We may be, we may be... <laughs> the understatement, not of the decade, of the uh, century. We may be heading, we may be heading not for the end with a bang. We may be heading for that, too. Mm. We may be heading for the end with, a, with a, a universal whimper. Oh, hardly um, that. Now, can we... Uh, any way to pick uh, us up in well a now, hurry, Doc? Have you got a, have you got a uh, quick uh, yeah, fix? Well, you something you fix? said that may be the cue. Uh, just to remind you, before we take a slight pause here, for A, this is the ubiquitous message for that, I should like to have that New York address again, if you'd read that. This is where you send two cents. Uh, you know, where you send, whatever you send to the New York uh, Quaker. That's Philadelphia. Philadelphia, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Either you can look up the Chicago regional office uh, in your Chicago phone book and send your, send your contribution there, or the national office, of course, in Philadelphia, which is the, where the Quakers started in this country. It's 160 North 15th Street, 15, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19102. Now, these organizations... These institutions, they do other things besides relief work. But they're pretty much turning their, tur their energies, their poor little energies such as they have, to doing relief well, work now because the desperation yeah. is not to be believed. And we're not going to save 500 million, you know. We're going, they're going to be written off, most of them. But some may be but saved, and we yeah. might be okay. saved if only yeah. we wanted to save well, them. Well, of course, this is precisely the point, it, it, what it does for us. We'll return in a moment with Milton Mayer, and he says, what about a pick-me-up? Maybe I can think of a certain person whom he admired very much, and whom I came to <laughs> admire very much during the last years of his life, whom Milton Mayer knew very well. And maybe in his story might be a possible road, if not to salvation, at least to sanity and some sort of living with ourselves, after we hear this message. I'm not a Pollyanna. I, that's right. No, it's just looking for these little lights. And you mentioned Fellowship of Reconciliation. And of course, I thought of somebody named A.J. Musty. 
Now, a while back you were talking about sawmills to both sides in Laos, and you were talking about a guy who, without weapons, without lethal, without guns, disarms, or at least discombobulates enemy, was no longer enemy. So, who is A.J. Musty to you? I can tell you, I can tell you not who A.J. Musty was to me, but what A.J. Musty was and is to me. A.J. started out as a preacher, a reformed church, a Dutch reformed church up in Michigan, uh, became a labor skate, and after fighting in the labor movement, he was on every picket line, he was in every strike for about 10 or 15, 20 years. A.J. went back, not to the church, but to religion. And one of his fellow labor skates on that occasion shook his head and said, once a Christer, always a Christer. <laughs> A.J. was the fellow who started the Fellowship of Reconciliation in this country. It's an international uh, organization representing, as I say, uh, all the churches. And on one occasion, I didn't know this man, Musty. I was at a meeting. People were sitting quietly. It was during the Second World War. And this long, lanky, gaunt drink of water stood up. It turned out it was A.J. And in the midst of that silence said, If I can't love Hitler, I can't love at all. And the silence continued. People got up finally, left at the end of the silence, and looked thoughtful, and I suspect felt thoughtful. I know I did. If I can't love Hitler, I can't love at all. Well, it threw us right back to the Sermon on the Mount. If ye love them which love you, where is your reward? Don't even the publicans do the same? It's to love your enemy. That's the job. To love your enemy, that's the hardest job of all, I suppose. To love these harmless people in Bangladesh or India and the whole of South Asia, uh, that's not too hard. They're not really your enemies. Someday they will be. To love them isn't so hard. But look at what loving one's enemy is. Man, look what this means. Studs, I've talked about the Quakers. You've identified me by a, as a Quaker. And I'm a member of the confounded society. Uh, but like a lot of other members, I'm a member by convincement. I wasn't born a Quaker. It'd be a birthright Quaker. You've got to be somebody like Richard Nixon. You have to be born a Quaker. Uh, so I'm just as glad that I wasn't born one. Uh, I'm a Jew uh, by birth and a Jew, a Jewish Quaker by profession. All right, here we are, 1974, the end of the year. If I can't love the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, I can't love at all. That's what A.J. Musty is saying to me now. How do you like that for hard lines, friend? Now, look, I would rather, I would rather be ruined sitting there with a can of bad beer in my hand and looking at these incredibly crummy television commercials and the incredibly crummy television programs than have anybody say to me, Mayor, 
If you can't love the PLO, you can't love at all. Oh, you're talking about the possibility of appealing to something better in me and appealing to something better that's in all of us. We know that Christ was right in the Sermon on the Mount, but the price of it, the price of it, psychologically, that's a high price to pay. We'd rather sit back and be ruined. Remember how difficult it was? I mean, James Baldwin spoke of it some time ago when he, early in the early days of Martin Luther King and, and the movement, when the stuff was spilled on the kids throughout and, and, the, and the advice was just, you know, nonviolent, accept it. And Baldwin was saying how difficult it was and what it did to the psyches of some of these kids who were humiliated and abused and handcuffed and kicked and all, to smile and accept it. <laughs> I love you, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so th we come to a question of what is psychologically possible to an individual, you know. And you know, what the question isn't so much loving the enemy as how does one disarm? Mm -hmm. you're, talking about dis mm -hmm. you're talking about disarming, coming back to musty. How do you disarm the enemy? Yeah. Well, the word yeah. disarm is interesting. Mm -hmm. When we use the phrase, yeah, he's a very disarming. Milton Mayer happens to be a very disarming guy. We use it as as something that's mm -hmm. quite, you know, a marvelous phrase. Mm -hmm. and disarming also means charm, but also means you take the weapon away from the other person. Well, what you do is, in some way, you get the other person to lay the weapon down. Ah. Uh, and uh, we live in an armed world. I'm not talking about the great nations and the Pentagon. I'm talking about every man turned against every other. How do you disarm the man that you meet on the street? How do you disarm? How do you disarm your wife when you've got, or your husband, when you're having a row at home? Uh, you can beat him or her over the head uh, with anything you've got handy. Uh, or with a rolling pin or a brick? How do you disarm your bad boy, your child? Uh, you can beat him half to death, too. That isn't going to disarm him. That's going to make him worse. Is there a way to disarm people? Well, if ye love them which love you, where is your reward? How are you going to love somebody that these surface instincts of you that you have drive you to hate. I, I don't know, there's nothing harder than that, friend. And I repeat, it's a lot easier to go out and get drunk or stay home and get drunk or look at television than to face this fact. And I'm not talking about Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. I'm talking about Monday morning at 9 o'clock. Uh, I, this is the challenge. This always was the challenge. It always will be the challenge. And if I seem to be sinking in despair, well, my faith won't let me. But as I look about me, as I look at the United States of America, just, just one society, it's no worse than any other, I look at the incredible profligacy, this wealth, this wealth that we stumbled on or that our ancestors stumbled on, and I wonder if this sickest of all societies, because compared with the others, we're the sickest of the lot, whether it's crime or drugs or whatever, I wonder whether a good, fat depression well, wouldn't do us a little good. Let me tell you something, Studs. Of course, it's easy to talk this way. This means 
millions out of work. This means bread lines. This means starvation, too. Uh, but I've crossed this uh, country in the last couple of days in my great big American gunboat um, from Massachusetts uh, to Chicago, and I've got a little news for you. It's coming. It's coming. The discount gas stations are beginning to reduce the gas price. That means the fat boys are going to have to follow. That means the wonderful days of the gas wars are coming. You know, Studs, yeah. I'm sure it's on its way. There are signs of all sorts. The cell is getting tougher and tougher and tougher. People make a deal with you. Uh, my old man, my father, a Chicago boy too, like me, my father used to sell paper boxes, carrying his samples on the streetcars around Chicago. Along came the great days of insult when you could buy Middle West utility stock on your electric light bill every month. He wound up sitting in a great big leather chair on LaSalle Street in a place called Halsey Stewart and Company. I'll bet they're still in business. And he was wiped out, of course. Wiped out in the crash of 29. And in his old age, he got back on the streetcar with his paper box samples and had to hustle. I'm not sure that it did him a lot of harm to be well, wiped out. He didn't starve now. If he'd starved, it would have done come, him some harm. Of course, you come to a very interesting. By the way, my, my old lady also <laughs> bought quite a few of Insul Utilities stock. I think the certificates are still around somewhere. But the matter of the Depression, this comes up very often. I remember working on hard times. Suppose there were another Depression. Well, uh, Dorothy Day, who you admire very much, yes, Dorothy, Day said, Dorothy Day said she wouldn't mind another one. She was thinking of the Vietnam War and the horrors of it and the profits the few made from it. And then she said, Ignacio Siloni once said, everybody's disaster is nobody's disaster. Mm -hmm. And so there's the sharing of a common deprivation. But there's another way of looking at it, too. What if there were one? Is the working guy aware of who is euchring him? Uh, is he aware that the great portion of his check goes to the Pentagon, to madness there? And some would say, it's not too bad if there's enough there to destroy all the Soviet Union, all China, but to do it a hundredfold mm -hmm. is mad. He doesn't object Teach him to a good lesson. He doesn't object to that, though, because that's national security. He does object to that which he calls H-E-W checks, to that woman and those kids. So unless he knows who's putting them down, wouldn't a depression now at this moment probably lead to something that was took place in a middle European country in the 30s where you were? There was depression in Germany, and along came Hitler. Yeah. So the question is, if there is a depression and there's a common uh, deprivation of luxuries, and we trust not of the very necessities of life, food, clothing, and shelter, but if there is one, uh, how will it go? Studs, there are a lot of reasons why it can't happen here. There are an equal number of reasons, I suspect, why it can. We're a long way away uh, from that sort of thing. And as Huey Long said long ago, when fascism comes to America, we'll call it Americanism. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of it. I was thinking uh, of precisely that, <laughs> Huey Long's uh, phrase. You know, our heterogeneity uh, may save us. We're not a nation. 
for a nation of 150 or 300 nations, the so-called ethnic and all other kinds of groups, uh, where you're talking about Germany with its homogeneity, people could be homogenized overnight. It's pretty hard for anybody in America, in a country like this, unique, by the way, in its heterogeneity, uh, it's pretty hard for anybody to reach everybody. Uh, Roosevelt, uh, Franklin, uh, did a fair job of reaching not everybody, but maybe 60%. Uh, the next time around, the next depression, it might not be a Roosevelt. It might be a real roughneck. And there are a few standing in the wings. Uh, we don't have anybody um, yet, really, with his head very far above the horizon. Uh, though, of course, it's interesting to observe that when uh, uh, Ted Kennedy announced that for what he called personal reasons, uh, he would not run for the presidency in 1976, his place as the leading Democratic contender was immediately taken by George Wallace. And remember, friend, it wasn't a thousand years ago that the best man in the United States Senate, Robert M. La Follette, Jr., was replaced by the voters of the enlightened state of Wisconsin with Joe McCarthy. So to say that it can't happen here, and for all the reasons that one can think of, uh, is not to say that it might not happen. You don't see it, but when people, uh, when enough people are out of work and enough people are telling them that the reason they're out of work is that the bums are being fed by the government, not the bums in the Pentagon, no. but the bums in the street are being fed by the government, we'll shoot down the bums on the street and we'll have fascism. That's, that's off yet a little way. And maybe... Uh, no wonderful this term recession. You know, it's going. It becomes official as yeah. soon as as soon you know, as the president's phrase, press secretary. Well, you know, you know the phrase, the recession when someone's out of when someone else is out of work, and depression yeah. when you're out of work. Yeah, it's. Uh, we love euphemisms. Yeah, you know that. it's it's on its way. I one of the things that hit me when I got back yeah. after a year working in France, just got back a month ago. The supermarkets aren't so crowded. They are not so crowded. There are times of day and toward the weekend when they are. They really, th this is, you know, this, yeah. is a, uh, this is a, the roughest kind of, of, of feeling that one has. They're not so crowded. Yeah, Milton, I want to get as many of your, of your observations in as possible during this hour, so uh, we'll let this hang for a moment, this oncoming depression. Yes, no, which way? Yourself, teaching American civilization in Paris, thoughts there. What? is the feeling you come back with? Well, uh, there's one aspect of it that I think is beautiful. Um, I was invited to teach there. Uh, the invitation came by overseas telephone from Paris. I responded with a one-cent postcard, uh, which by now, of course, is an eight-cent postcard. Another telephone call from Paris. Another response from me with an eight-cent postcard. It used to be the other way around. Mm -hmm. We used to make the telephone calls, and they replied by postcard. 
the independence, their economic independence of the United States, their political independence of the United States, their stored-up resentment of the United States, in spite of everything that the United, the American people and the United States have done uh, out of their largesse, out of their surplus uh, in time of desperate need in these countries, this independence is reducing us uh, to the level, uh, psychologically, of a society which does not interest other societies as much as it once did. Uh, the French, of course, regard themselves as the only civilized people on earth. Uh, I can't say that they live a much more civilized life than we do. Uh, it's about the same, certainly in the cities. Uh, but they are a better educated people than we are. There are some respects in which, especially as regards the arts, in which they are a much more civilized people than we are. You know, I was crossing Indiana yesterday in this dreadnought I was driving, or my wife was you call driving. call it a gunboat and then dreadnought. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting bigger all the time. I mean, the front end starts, and about mm. ten minutes later, the, the rear end of it starts. Obsolescent next year. Oh, man. Uh, well, it was obsolescent when I bought it. So. Um, and uh, here were these uh, rest stops along the, uh, the turnpike in Indiana, and they're all named for great Indianians. Well... There are more rest stops than there are famous Indianians. You know, after you had Booth Tarkington, William Cullen Bryant, Ernie Pyle, and then the, you got a whole string of people that nobody ever heard of. Well, there's an Indianian for whom none of these rest stops is named. His name was Eugene V. Debs uh, from Terre Haute, or Terre Haute, as we used to say, uh, who, when he was in prison for resisting the draft in the uh, First World War, he was in prison in 1920. He was the head of the Socialist Party. He got a million votes for president. While in prison. While he was yeah. in prison. Now, studs, there isn't a town in France that doesn't have a street or a square or a park named after the great French socialist leader of 50 years ago, Jean Jaurès or of the defender of Dreyfus, Emile Zola. Not just their streets yeah. being named uh, after Mozart and Goethe and so on, and Balzac, Diderot, but... Even a uh, sculptor named Rue Bourdel. These are... Th it's this kind of thing. Who in America would name a street or a park or a square after Gene Debs? Uh, well, the one called McFetridge Boulevard. Oh yes, and McCormick Road. <laughs> uh, this is a. Uh, uh, these are the intangibles of is a civilized, semi-civilized. Is, is there a Darrow Street here yet? I'll I bet there no is. I'll bet there is. And and Clarence Darrow yeah. was respectable yeah. compared with Gene Debs. There certainly wouldn't be an Albert Parsons Street. No. Nah. Well, um, you know, uh, American civilization. I suppose what we need here, and we haven't got time for it in our society, is another 500 or 1,000 years. We haven't got time for it. 
this is the hurry up place and the hurry up people of all hurry up places and people uh, and to teach or go through the motions of trying to teach American civilization to Parisians uh, is quite something. In a sense, incidentally, the French student or the European student is much, is, is much more primitive than ours in the sense that he's completely politicized and completely dogmatized. Uh, he knows everything that's going on in the world today, but he doesn't know his own culture. He doesn't know his own history. He is becoming illiterate. By the way, aren't you touching on something? We want to get this in before we go to lunch, and that's uh, the break in continuity. One of the horrors, I think, of, of this particular era, decade, maybe it never was, continuity is like as a... I, I remember working on the Depression book. They knew little about that period, and that's why the book uh, scored in some quarters. Uh, they were told that, all they were told was that Roosevelt was elected four times, that a war came along, uh, maybe they were told about COB. That was all. Their parents never told them, and that's because of a sense of guilt. They felt they were no good because they weren't working. But the break in continuity, it's, uh, you find this in the popular arts and folk music and theater and everything, as though nothing had happened before they came along. And so the inventor, uh, the first singer of folk songs would be Bob Dylan, but not Woody Guthrie, and for him, not someone else. Mm, and mm. As, it's as though... And Carl Sandburg yeah. is a name no, nobody would know. So nothing had happened before. Isn't this what you're talking about? Yeah. Possibly this is the land of discontinuity, and it ain't nobody's fault. Mm. I can tell you who the villains are, but you're going to have a hard time laying hands on them. The villains of this piece, of the American piece, are Euclid, Archimedes, uh, Marconi, Morse, Edison... The biggest, the, the, I'd say the wickedest one of them all was a man named Lee DeForest, an American, of yeah. course, who invented the vacuum tube. Yeah. But now, here we go. Uh, you're not a Luddite. I mean, it's not a question of destroying Can't do it. technology. Can't but do it. But it, it, it wouldn't, even if you could, would you? Uh, you're not against indoor plumbing. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, is the villain really these men who, in a sense, are fathers of our technology one way or another? Um, or is it the manner which it's used? Well, of course, it's a, these two, these men too, were instruments, the inventors of everything we have. But you know, studs is a beautiful note to close on. You said, I'm not against indoor plumbing, am I? Why, of course not. That would be un-American. <laughs> but a friend of mine is just back from China. There's no indoor plumbing in the villages of China. Human excrement is prized as fertilizer, and it is all used as fertilizer. It's the richest, most prolific form of, of fertilizer that we, that's available. Studs, this guy was living in a village for about 10 days, no indoor plumbing. He said in the course of those 10 days, it was in the middle of summer, he saw five flies no indoor plumbing, ah, but just one holers, ah. five ah, flies wait, in ten to, days. I have to repeat, the fact is there is a different society, and there the people uh, felt it was their society, and there was a campaign, like Mao or not, there was a fly swatter campaign, and they felt, you once told the story, if you come back to the story, you once told, with all the horrendousness in the Soviet Union, indeed it's awful, 
You, sp you spoke to them of certain feeling people at one time they had when something fell off a truck. Mm -hmm. The whole black ran to pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. See? And in China, going a step yeah. further, I'm not now talking about the idea, I'm talking now about a feeling people have, a communal feeling. Mm -hmm. And so there are no flies because the people of China or from their side, they're going to mm -hmm. wipe out all those flies, you know. Yeah, what's going to happen to the people uh, in a society to whom the problem of flies isn't their business? Ah, well. Um, this is what you're, you're really, you've just said something pretty significant and pretty devastating about our society, friend. A society that belongs to somebody else doesn't belong to me. A society I don't have responsibility for. But this is the free enterprise individual initiative society that made it possible for Nelson Rockefeller to give a deserving friend a few dollars. What was it? Five hundred thousand, five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Not a wicked man, not a wicked society in our terms. It was his, wasn't it? And he used it the way he wanted to. And don't, isn't this what we're up against in the end? That we are confronting. I was about to say, you can't mm. love Nelson Rockefeller, you can't love anybody. Oh, that's not a bad man. <laughs> that's a pretty decent <laughs> American. Well, I want to last go. What, what, before we say, not farewell, that's too final. Before we say goodbye just for now, a thought. Uh, you want a thought from me? <laughs> yeah, about where we are, mm. where to, what next. Hmm. Oh, friend. I'll tell you what you do. I think if you're aware that it ain't your brother or your sister, but it's you, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer, I don't say send two cents to feed a, a child in India a hot meal. I don't say send six dollars to keep a Vietnamese orphan alive for a month. I say that when you sit down to overeat, when you go out to overspend, just remember that that's what you could have done. That's a beginning, and I don't mind if the guilt crushes you. It crushes me, and I keep going. Thank you very much. Milton Mayer is always, of course, a marvelous experience meeting him and listening to him. And just to repeat this commercial, if we may, a real one, one I believe in very much, Fellowship of Reconciliation Address, that's uh, where you can, it's helping yourself, really. It's Box 271, Nyack, N-Y-A-C-K, New York, 10960. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stud.